Good morning. If you don't know me, uh, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm a member of the preaching team. And that's something I've been thinking about recently because I looked at the preaching calendar. I was thinking about it. I was like, man, if someone was new here and they'd only been coming for a few weeks, they'd probably ask the question, who is the primary preacher around here? The answer is yes. Uh, so we, we, we operate off of a team model. And, and one of the big blessings of that is that none of us get burnt out that we get to sit in the pew, so to speak, these aren't pews, but we get to sit in the pew and we get to receive from God's word and recharge and uh, God's blessed us with, with multiple people that are gifted in sharing God's word. Uh, I think one of the downsides of that is we kind of get tunnel vision. Each of us is kind of focusing on the next sermon we have to do and we forget to tell people things like when we're transitioning from one series to another. So I'm just gonna lay it all out for you today. Okay, does that sound good? Today is the last week of the book of Exodus, believe it or not. You might say, well, how's that possible? We aren't to the end of the book of Exodus. Well, a few weeks ago, Caleb finished up the book for us. We're just doing some cleanup. So if you missed that, you can go back and listen to that. Caleb kind of brought us to the end of the book. Next week, we're going to be starting a five-week mini-series going through our core values here at Hollis Center Church. We believe it's important for us to regularly refocus on what's most important uh, in our lives, in the Christian life, and especially for us as a body of believers. It's a great time for us who have been here for 30 years to be reminded of the essentials, and for those of you who are newer to kind of see what we're all about. After that, we're going to go into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And believe it or not, that's going to take us basically up until Christmas. So time flies. Somewhere in there, there's probably going to be another mini-series. We like to leave those mini-series kind of unplanned uh, so we can address a topic that's really pressing that we really feel led to address. Uh, so that's, that's basically 2021 in preaching for you. Uh, before we get into Exodus 34, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the blessing of being here together as your people. Thank you for the blessing of your word. Holy Spirit, please work in our hearts today. Convict us of sin. Remind us of your character. May these words be yours and not my own. In the powerful and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, so uh, for those of you that, that, that are familiar with me, or at least my social media accounts, you know that I like to fish. Fishing is kind of one of the major things I do for fun. I'm not an expert, but I do dabble in a lot of different types of fishing. And one type of fishing that I've been kind of messing around with the past few years is fly fishing which is kind of super traditional uh, backwoods Maine fly fishing. And, and I think fly fishing is an amazing illustration for what we're gonna talk about today. In fly fishing, closeness matters. W way more than other types of fishing. Other types of fishing, and you can just bomb that lure way out there to where you need to go, but in fly fishing, you're trying to get as, pretty much as close to the fish as you can without spooking it. And, and so one of the ways you do that, because closeness matters, right? You want to you get in the water so you can get that fly to land just in this perfect part of the current to float by this rock where you think there's a trout behind it or, or whatnot. You, you wear waders often because those waders are a barrier that helps protect you 
from the water so that in, in the early spring you don't catch hypothermia going fishing. And even the rest of the year you don't want to get wet and, and cold. So in, in fly fishing, closeness matters. You have a helpful boundary barrier, your waders that protect you from the water, but there are also barriers and boundaries that will actually get in the way of you getting close to the fish. You might wade into the water and there's a, a section of deep current that you can't pass through without the water coming over your waders. There might be an uh, underwater mass of sticks that if you know you try to get through there, you're gonna fall over, it's gonna rip a hole in your waders. So in fly fishing, closeness matters. And there are boundaries, there's good ones like your waders that help protect you, help you get close to the fish, and there are other ones that might keep you away from the fish. And, and in the same way for us in our relationship with God, closeness matters. Closeness is worth it. But there are some boundaries that help us get close with God, and there are others that keep us away. Closeness with God is a worthwhile battle of barriers and boundaries. Closeness with God is a, is a worthwhile battle of barriers and boundaries. So if you're, if you're not already there, please join me in Exodus uh, 34. We're going to be in the first nine verses to begin with. Just as a recap, we've seen that Moses was up on the mountain speaking with God, receiving the law from God. And in that, that, that time that Moses was up on the mountain, the people just outright broke out and started, they created an idol and they began worshiping that idol and, and, and just partying uh, like crazy. And so Moses comes down the mountain and, and we saw just, just all of the drama around that event of God's judgment on his people, of Moses interceding, being a, a middleman between God and the people protecting them. And so Moses goes back up to the mountain to receive kind of a second copy because he smashed the first one uh, when he came down the mountain. So, so in these first nine verses of, of Exodus chapter 34, we see that, that Moses is receiving a second set of tablets. And starting in verse five, it says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. We see, we see that God descends once again on the mountain in his glory to restore the relationship with his people. And as he does this, he is proclaiming his own character to Moses. He's proclaiming who he is, that he is merciful, gracious. He's not quick to anger, but he is slow to anger. His, his love is steadfast, that he is a, a faithful God. 
that he forgives thousands of generations, but at the same time, he doesn't overlook sin. That those who humble themselves and ask for forgiveness will find it, but he will also punish the wicked generation after generation after generation. And Moses' response to this is to worship. He sees how good God is, how glorious God is, and he worships. And he says, Lord, please have your presence with us. Please please be with us. We are a stiff-necked people. He sees how rebellious the people of Israel are, and he says, we need you with us. We want you close with us. That God is worth being close with. That God is not just this this short-tempered being of wrath, but he is faithful, and he's loving, and he's just, and he is good, and he's worth being in relationship with. And so starting in verse 10, the next verses to follow, God is kind of reminding the people of some, some important points that he had made previously Uh, when he entered into covenant with them, when he built a relationship with them. He reminds them of some parts of the law that that are especially uh, going to be important considering how they have just messed up in committing an act of idolatry. Now, I think there are three categories in, in this section. There are three categories of these boundaries that God gives his people to draw them closer to him. Boundaries that when they entered the promised land would keep them in relationship with God. The first one is relationship. The second one is influence. And the third one is schedule. Relationship, influence, and schedule. In in verse 10 it says, And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among, uh, among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So, so here, here we see God promising to draw his people back into relationship with him, and that he is going to do amazing things through them. He's going to do marvels that haven't even been seen before, and when other nations look at what God is doing through his people, they will Marvel, And this is exactly what we see, that when the Israelites, the, the generation after this, finally enters the promised land, the people, the few people that are left clinging on to the promised land are trembling because they know that God is with these people and is doing miraculous things. The, the covenant is, is renewed and restored. And the next few verses, God is is commanding them once again that be careful when you go into the land, do not enter into alliances and marriages with the other people in this area. And the reason behind this isn't racially motivated. Rather, it is that these people groups are are pagans, that they worship all these false gods. Uh, Starting in verse 15, it says, Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, 
and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. This is extreme language, right? This isn't the type of language we even would probably use in church. But, but God is using the language of, of, of whoring adultery to refer to these religious practices, right? That, that, that us as human beings are made in the image of God for relationship with the living God. And to replace that relationship with a relationship with an idol, with anything that isn't God, that we put in God's place, is spiritual adultery. It's an abomination in God's eyes. And he says, look, I know that if you go into the land and you intermarry with these people and you start having barbecues with these people, you're going to get sucked right into these adulterous practices. And unfortunately, we know that's exactly what happened to Israel when they did enter the promised land. That after that first generation passed away, they fell into these practices. And, and so if that first boundary is relationship, that you are in uh, relationship with the living God, you're in covenant, and I'm going to do amazing things through you, that that second boundary is a boundary of influence. That God's people were to look out because these people can influence you in a direction that is going to draw you away from me and after other false gods. That, that separating themselves from these people would be a boundary that would draw them into closeness with God. And finally, there's this issue of, of schedule. As we see starting in verse 18 uh, through you know, about verse uh, 26, there are all of these ceremonies and festivals that God wove into the schedule of his people to continually draw them back into remembrance of what he had done and worship of who he was. And we've already talked a little bit about this, so I'm not going to tarry here, but God gave them a calendar. Now, now, how many of you are super organized people? You like schedules? You like calendars? No, I'm seeing very few hands, but people don't like raise their hands anyways. How many of you are disorganized people? You're running by the seat of your pants, okay? I don't know how you got here this morning, but, right, some of us like schedules, some of us don't. But at the end of the day, we all need schedule to survive, Right? Our workplaces can't just say, come in whenever you want, whenever you feel like it, we'll pay you anyways. It doesn't work that way, right? We are people of habit. Maybe some of us have bad habits, right? But our habits can shape us. And so God gave his people a schedule of feasts and festivals and ceremonies. And specifically, in verses 23 and 24, it says, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. So there are three festivals specifically where all of the men go up to an appointed place, which would later be Jerusalem, and they were to worship God there. And God says, hey, don't worry about people invading your village while you're gone. I have your back. Go up and worship me. Now, unfortunately, we, we know that this wasn't very faithfully followed uh, in the time of Israel, but regardless, th this, is, this is an awesome, awesome schedule. 
that three times a year, all of the basic, all of the leaders of all the families come in one place and they worship the living God. That regardless of how you feel, regardless of how your year's gone, you are drawn back together to know God and to worship him. So God gave them a boundary of relationship, a boundary of influence, and a boundary of schedule. Now I'm going to read uh, 27 to the rest of the chapter because this is, a, this is a really important section. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. I think the power of this passage is often lost on us because we've been ruined with CGI. Right? Like, like you, can, you can go watch the entire marathon of how many, I don't know, how many superhero Mar you know, Marvel movies are on Disney Plus right now. And you can see all sorts of crazy things, right? Where we use computer graphics to make someone look like they're glowing, look like they're shining, lasers coming out of their eyes or their chest or whatnot. But, but Moses has spent time with the living God. The, the living God who says, no man can see my face and live. And the very glory of that God is reflecting, in a sense, off of Moses' face. So at a distance, when he comes down the mountain, no one wants to come see him. Moses just had a, a little bit of God. He didn't even get to see God's face. But just speaking with God was enough that when he came down the mountain, there's enough of that residual glory just kind of reflecting off of Moses that the people can't stand to be near him. That when he goes in and speaks with God and comes out, they make him wear a mask, basically, because they can't bear it. That, that being in the closeness with God, there's just this, this awesome sign of God's glory coming off of Moses. It's really cool. But, but even in that, uh, that amazing sign, we're, we're noticing a dynamic here. We're noticing that, 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 sure, it's amazing to be close with the living God. He's a God of amazing character, but there needs to be a mediator. There needs to be a middleman. I mean, God had just said a chapter before, look, you guys can go to the promised land, and I'm going to take care of you, but I'm not going to be in your midst. 
because you know, you're, a, you're a stiff-necked people, right? My, you, my wrath is going to lash out against you because you guys are rebels. And Moses pleaded with God and said, no, like, we, we need you to come with us. We need your presence with us. And so there's this, there's this dynamic of Moses talks to God and then Moses talks to the people and Moses talks to God and Moses talks to the people. And this is the dynamic we see pretty much throughout the entire Old Testament is there needs to be a man between God and the people. And even that man is just a sinner. He's a, a normal person. But, but there needs to be a man between God and the people. And, and, and Moses being a mediator, yes, he connects the people to God, but he also kind of separates them from him. Kent Hughes says this. He says, where do we see the glory of God's mediator today? We see it in the face of Jesus Christ. He is our mediator, the man appointed to stand between us and the God of our salvation. And he goes on to say, and how did God authenticate the ministry of Jesus Christ? He did it in a way similar to what he did for Moses by revealing Jesus' glory as the mediator. All of us have rebel hearts. We're sinners, and that sin creates a rift, a barrier between us and the living God, that it's difficult to be in relationship with them because continually we are violating his law, violating his character, and we continually need his forgiveness. And sure, Moses was able to, to kind of functionally stand between God and, and Israel and, and be the one who advocated for them, but their, their, their heart condition was not solved by that. Moses wasn't able to change the hearts of the people. In fact, this generation dies in the wilderness because of their rebellion. Their kids are the ones who get to go to the promised land, spoiler alert. And even Moses himself doesn't enter the promised land. That, that he was an imperfect mediator, that, that even he got between God and the people, and he lashed out in anger. And so Moses dies on the mountain overlooking the promised land. He doesn't get to enter that rest. Human mediators are helpful, but they can't solve our heart condition. They can't make that rift any better. They can help communicate between God and man, but there, there, there's, there's really not much beyond that. And that's why Jesus is so, so, so much better. Fully God and fully man. He can communicate with us as a man. He knows our weaknesses, but he is God himself. He is the mediator that, yes, connects us to God, but there's no separation because he is God. In Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Moses because Moses which was trying to lead God's people into a rest that ultimately that generation did not even attain. And yet the rest that Jesus leads his people to is eternally secure and successful. 
in Hebrews 8, 6. It says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Well, we saw that that old covenant that, that Israel was under was conditional. God made some unconditional promises. He says, yes, I am going to bring you into the promised land. I am going to push out your enemies. I am going to do this. I am going to do this. But there are also those conditional elements that if you walk in my ways, I will bless you. If you walk in my ways, I'm going to put away sickness and miscarriage, and you guys are just going to flourish here. If. And were they able to? No, because the heart condition, the rift in the heart hadn't been fixed. Even though God would continually appoint middlemen and and women to, to judge Israel and stand between him and the people, the heart condition was never fixed. The rebellion continued. But under the new covenant, bought by Christ's blood on the cross, he promises us salvation. That when we die, our soul is secure with him, and one day we will get a new body, we will get to reign with him forever. And and not just that, but in this current life, he gives us the Holy Spirit. So, So that it's not like, well, I'm waiting to be with God, but the very Spirit of God dwells in me. And in every believer, that there is a closeness that, that many of the people in the Old Testament could have only dreamed of. Some of them got a taste of it, but we get to live in its fullness as, as members of the new covenant, that the promises of the new covenant are way better. They're way better. Jesus does not separate us from God. He connects us. If Jesus is our Lord, God the Father is truly our Father. He has adopted us. And if he is our Father, the Spirit is given to us, and in a sense, even Jesus is our brother. That the new covenant draws us into relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a way that that, that no human mediator, no human middleman ever could. Closeness with God is a worthwhile battle of barriers and boundaries. Closeness with God is a worthwhile barrier, a battle of, of barriers and boundaries. Now, Jesus is the one who, who wins this closeness for us. He's the one who mends that rift. He's the one who forgives us. He's the one who, who, who gives us his very own Righteousness, that, that Jesus' right relationship with God is given to us freely when we believe. But we, but we still walk around in, in sinful bodies. We still walk around with, with sinful flesh. We still walk around as rebels. We've been brought back into relationship with God, but there's still the issue that we sin against him that that relationship gets broken. And, and though Christ has demolished the, the, the barrier that is our sin in a, in a court sense, that we no longer face judgment, our sin can still get in the way with our relationship with God. And as a matter of illustration, 
you know, our government, right, everyone just shudders when we hear that word, right, our government, our government is in a tough spot. I mean this in a very general sense. I know some of you have very specific, heavily politicized senses in your minds right now. But our government is in a tough spot because we're a country that believes in safety and freedom at the same time. And those two things are in tension with each other. Are they not? Because freedom says I can drive as fast as I want. Safety says no. Right? So, so the government has to step in and they have to say, you know, sure, like we want you to, ha- we want you to have freedom. We want you to enjoy this. Like you can have that fast sports car, right? Like we don't want to rob you of that. But we have to say you can't drive over this limit, right? Because you're going to kill somebody. Right? Like, 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 like the government has to say, yeah, you can own a shotgun, but you can't own a rocket launcher. Right? The, the, this is, and this, you know, that's kind of a silly example, but the government has to step in and say, well, look, we believe in both freedom and safety. And we want to create a land where it is safe to live, but you also have freedom. And there are extremes there, right? We don't want to live in a world where just, man, anyone can do whatever they want. Why? Because that's anarchy. We'd fear for our lives. And on the other side, right, if we were to say, no, we just need to make America as safe, as safe, as safe as possible, well, that's, that's a dictatorship. That's a place where just the government controls everything. We just live in a giant padded box all day. Right, right, neither of these are good examples. And I believe that that same tension exists in, in the Christian life. That same tension exists in the Christian life. Because Christ has given us freedom. That we're no longer under an old covenant that says, if you do this, you'll be blessed. Christ blesses us freely. But he also calls us to repent, that Christ is doing a work in our lives of making us look more and more and more like him. And in that process, he calls us to change. He calls us to walk away from our sin and turn towards him, that we have a responsibility in that. And, and so there's, there's a tension there. Right? We throw around the words legalism and license. And depending what your church background is or your religious background is, you might have baggage in one of those two categories. Now, I was kind of born on the tail end of kind of that golden era of legalism in church. And so, you know, the, the danger with legalism is that we get so focused on the boundaries Right? We say we shouldn't do this and we shouldn't do this because these are things that are going to draw us away from God. And that's a good thing. It's good to set up boundaries, but we become, so, we become so focused on the boundaries that the boundaries become God. And we become so focused on, man, okay, you, you, your, your, your skirt is, is one inch beyond the limit. It's a little too short. I saw you had a can of beer in your fridge. You know, we get so focused on these, these little tiny things that, that, that we miss the gospel. We miss the God behind the gospel because we're so focused on keeping these tiny rules to please God. But, but now we see in America, churches are, are, are sw- swooping way heavily to the license side. That we're so afraid of, 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 of approaching anyone and saying that they're sinning, we just kind of say, you do you. 
like, you know, do whatever's fine. Uh, you know, I'm not one to judge. Right, right, we, we see these, these two extremes, and at the end of the day, boundaries are still good. We need boundaries to be close with God. It's something that God gives to his people as a good gift. But if we reject boundaries, that leads us to destruction. And if we become obsessed with making boundaries, that also leads us to destruction. Legalism is like wearing so many life jackets you suffocate before you even fall out of the boat. And if that's legalism, license is jumping out of a plane without a parachute. They're both dumb. They don't lead you to holiness. They don't lead you into closeness with God. There needs to be a balance there. So, so, so with that in, in mind, I, I want to just briefly look, look at these boundaries and these barriers that, that we as, as sinful humans put between ourselves and our creator. Just some, some brief examples, right? Maybe busyness is that barrier between us and God. And I'm not talking about just being busy, right? Like, like most of us would say we're busy, but, but where we keep ourselves busy to avoid God actually addressing the hurt that's in us, addressing the healing that needs to happen in us, that, that we're just so busy, maybe we just zip into church and we zip out and we're so busy, we don't spend time with God's people, we don't spend time in the word, we just kind of, I like God and I, I like that I'm saved, but I'm just going to be so busy that, I, that, that God doesn't start getting his scalpel and doing surgery on my hurt, because that's going to hurt. I, idolatry is a big issue for us, and sometimes we take things that are very good and we put them in a place that belongs to God alone. So that the biggest factor in our life is a hobby. The biggest factor in our life is a relationship. The biggest factor in our life is, is money. The biggest factor in our lives is, is ourselves or our neediness. Or sometimes we just blatantly take something that is very clearly wicked and we just cling to it. We say, yeah, I know what God says, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cling to this this immoral relationship. I'm gonna cling to this misuse of a substance. Yeah, I know what God says about it, but I'm just going to cling to it, right? These are, these are wedges we put between ourselves and God. We, we, we cannot trick ourselves into thinking that we can do things that are an abomination in God's eyes, that break his heart, and that's not gonna affect our relationship. We, can, we can't trick ourselves into, into thinking that. The Bible is full of warnings. And maybe for us that are super religious, right? Uh, we consider ourselves super religious, and so we really avoid doing a lot of evil things. We do it in more subversive ways, even within the context of religion. So we put up barriers to the Holy Spirit. We say, I'm not even going to touch this book, right? I have my Christianity. I've worked everything out. I'm good, so I'm not going to touch this. Or maybe, even the most extreme example of this is that we say, oh, I love this book. I'm going to read it all the time. But we just put a barrier between the Holy Spirit and the book. 
that this book is fine as long as I'm interpreting it just by my own logic and reasoning. But once the conviction of God comes in, no, I'm just going to block that out. In fact, I don't even believe God can do that. I don't believe God's going to do anything mystical in between me and his word and his truth. No, 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 I'm going to reject feelings and emotions. It's just going to be logic. Why? Because then I can control the message. These are barriers we set up between ourselves and God. And praise the Lord that God is in the business of conquering these barriers, just kicking them down. But in that process, he calls us to come up around from them and abandon them. And so I think there there are three categories that help us, the same three categories we saw in Exodus 34. Relationship, influence, and schedule. These aren't an exhaustive list, but relationship, influence, and schedule. And and so I I have three questions based off these categories that I think just help us realize the places in our lives as believers that we've we've erected barriers between us and the living God. In regard to relationship, I, I like to ask this question to myself. If you or I practice the same communication patterns we use with God in a marriage, how healthy would that relationship be? Because often we kind of put communication with God in its own category. But, but just, just as an exercise... Think, think of how you communicate with the living God and imagine applying that in a marriage relationship. How well would those days of silence work in that relationship? How w- well would the occasional text work in that relationship? How would the emotional infidelity of deciding to vomit our guts on social media or gossip to others rather than turn to God with our problems. How, how would that emotional infidelity work in a marriage relationship? Man, doesn't that bring it down? <laughs> it, it does for me. Because we can often put, put communication with God in its own category, right? Where we convince ourselves that, man, I read my Bible 10 minutes every morning, and so I'm a super Christian. But, it, but, it, but God is, is personal, He's not a totem. He's not an idol. You can't just leave your offering, walk away, and be fine that he wants relationship with us. I think it's awesome that we're working on prayer. We're trying to pursue prayer. Because, man, it's, man, it's, so, it's so easy to go so long where we just, you know, we pray our little prayer of, you know, I want this, 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 and this. Our Father, amen. And it's not communication. It's not a relationship, it's an exchange. In regard to influence, we should ask ourselves the question, which way are our influences pulling us? Which way are our influences pulling us? And once again, this, this is a topic that I, that I find in, in Christian circles, we, we've kind of pulled back on Because just like a decade ago or a few decades ago, it was, well, you aren't allowed to watch this TV show. You aren't allowed to go to the movies. 
and you aren't allowed to spend time with unbelievers. And we saw the, the, the really dangerous negative side effects of that. Because God has called us to be in the world, but not of the world. And if you don't spend time with unbelievers, and you don't actually understand what's going on in the culture, it's going to be pretty hard to be their friend and share Jesus with them. It is. I believe that God's called us to engage with the culture, not pull out from it. But we still need to ask ourselves the question, which way are our influences pulling us? I'd like you to put the, the chart up there. And I'm not sure if you can read the numbers here, um, but this was a study done by eMarketer. And this is TV and mobile devices, the average time spent in the U.S. by a single adult. And so that black one is TV. People are kind of watching less and less TV and more and more phone usage as the years go by. In 2021, the U.S. average of TV was three and a half hours. Three and a half hours. And the average phone usage was about four hours. And now, for me being 24, I can't even imagine watching that much TV in a day, but I probably use my phone twice that. Just being honest, right? I don't want to know how many hours of YouTube I watch a day, right? In between here, in between there, I watch it more than TV. This is the average. So I know for a fact, you guys aren't going, man, I don't do that. Some of you are going, those are low numbers. I mean, if any of you watch House Hunters, you probably have to watch twice that because it just sucks you in. So what way are those influences pulling us? One of the most tragic things I've seen in my ministry, especially with young people and teens, because that's where, where the majority of my ministry has been over the past decade, is I see a battle of influence that is just impossible to win. Impossible to win. Because if what we do is spend one hour here and that's where our Christianity ends. And, and the rest of our week, we're consuming seven hours of media that, uh, that is actively opposing the reign of Jesus Christ. That will destroy us. It will get to us. And it's not going to happen immediately, but it will. It will get to us. Now, I'm not here saying, all right, guys, everyone, you need to tune your radio, all your, to get rid of all your country radio stations and turn it to Christian radio. You need to throw out all of your, your movies and switch to Christian movies. That's not what I'm saying. The issue is, is it glorifying to God or is it pulling you away from God? Is it glorifying to God or is it pulling you away from God? Which way are our influences pulling us? I think it's going to look different in each of our lives, but we need to take a look at that and ask ourselves, man, if I was to embrace the worldview that is being presented to me in the media I love to consume, what kind of person would I be? And when you answer that question, you will probably know the type of person you are going to be. We, we want to be careful of our influence. And then thirdly, schedule. Do our lifestyles draw us closer to God even when we don't feel like it? 
Do our schedules draw us closer to God even when we don't feel like it? If the only reason we go to a Sunday morning service, if the only reason we spend time with our Christian friends, if the only reason we pick up our Bibles is because we feel like it, that is a Christian life that is designed to fail. Because our feelings are the worst gauge to do anything. They are. We, and we know that. And so in its encouragement, right, you know, we, we know that, that all of those festivals and rituals were fulfilled in Christ. That we don't need to worship Passover, that we don't all get on, a, all the guys here don't three, three times a year get on a plane and go to Jerusalem. Well, that would actually be pretty fun, but uh, we, we don't do that, right? But there's still the principle that we are people of habit. And if we can create a life where we get up and we go Sunday morning, even if we don't feel like it, if we read our Bible, even if we don't feel like it, if we go to a small group and a Bible study and we have other Christians over in our house, even when we don't feel like it, that is a life structured to draw us closer to God. Because on those days where we don't feel like it, those are the days that we need it most. Amen? Those are the days we need it most. And so I'd just like to lead you in, in a prayer exercise in these moments and pray that God would reveal these boundaries in our lives, the boundaries that, that are getting in the way and the boundaries that we need to establish. Oh Lord, please bring us to a place of rest and peace in you, Lord Jesus. Please bring us to a place of rest and peace in you. There's so much going on, so much swirling through our minds. Please bring us to a place of rest and peace in you. And Lord, please silence those voices that distract us. Those, those voices that say don't listen. Those voices that try to change the subject. Lord, please silence the voices that distract us. And help us to respond to your truth. In response to your word, Holy Spirit, please bring to our minds the barriers we have set up to keep you away. And as these, these sinful barriers come to mind, forgive us and help us to cast them aside and follow you. Lord, help us to cast aside these barriers that you're bringing to our minds. Please bring to our minds good boundaries you're calling us to use in our pursuit of closeness with you. Help us to think of those good boundaries you want us to cling to in pursuit of you. And as these good barriers come to mind, strengthen us in our resolve to be close to you.
Lord, please rescue us from the dangers of license and legalism. May we be a people who are close with you, who walk with you, and draw others into closeness with you. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you.